0: how many people at this point in time have seen the sermon from last week? Could you just raise your hands? I just need to get a feel for it. That's pretty good. Thank you, God, for that. That's very important. Can I say something? If you have not seen it, I would just, just what can I do? You know, come over to my house and we'll watch it together, okay? I really, you know, make sure that you see this because This is yet again God meeting us at the beginning of a season to lay out what he's going to do for the season. But this is not just about the season. This is about the next phase of this entire church's life and history. As we talked about last week, uh, oops, something's wrong here. Uh, Can you go to my PowerPoint? Okay. As we talked about last week, thank you. I understand why you didn't do that. We changed everything up. This is not your fault at all. Okay. Okay. But um, what we talked about last, week yeah, there you go. Thank you very much. Can I, am I clicking yet or are you? Just click for me and then set it up. I wanna talk about this for a second. There you go. We talked about reset, okay? And what does reset mean? It's, it's really super simple. As I laid out last week, we've had 20 years of incredible things that God has done. The last few have had some, some fraying, And I think what God is doing right now is he's saying, now that you're here, now that you're there, actually, literally, now that you've gotten to the place you've gotten in Luke, and that I've done with you the thing that I wanted to do through all of that, now I want to do something new. I do believe there's a lot of people, as you know, that have gone out because of what we talked about last week, and God has sent them out and so on. I do believe that God wants a substantial number of people to be here to, to bring the DNA, to bring what you know, to be able to bring this thing that the Lord does and to be able to raise up the new people that God is going to bring in and the new community that he is going to build through doing that. So that's what Reset is about. That's what we're doing, okay? And, and you know, it's you and the Lord, and I really hope that you're here because I'm looking around this room and God has done some amazing things in a lot of people around here, and you have riches that you don't even know And when you start pouring them out, they will become more evident to you in a way that will blow you away. And you will be walking in the things of God in ways that you did not know existed. That's who God is in his infiniteness. In our finiteness, we think we kind of got it. In his infiniteness, he's saying, you haven't even scratched the surface yet. Come in. Come with me. Let me do what I want to do. So with that, We have Reset, but I need you to understand something about Reset. Does this mean that we're not, I'm literally doing a new PowerPoint, a new series, and we're calling it Reset, and the bottom line, so does this mean we're done with Empowered, and does this mean that we're done with Luke? Yes and no, okay? Because this is very much completely a continuation. I do believe, I don't know, because I never know from week to week what God's going to do. I'm going to do whatever he tells me to do, but I think he's going to take us through the end of Luke doing Reset. And think about why. Watch this. We've been saying for years that God has been trying to train up disciples. How did he train up his disciples? And that he would train us up in the same way, right? And now we're at the very end of Luke, where really all of that training, so to speak, is over. All the college level where you watched and learned, all the master's level where you went out and did. But then we've been saying something. The end of Luke is God sending you. The end of of Jesus' time with the disciples is, now that I've raised you up, go out, go do this, right? Put this into action. This is what we're talking about. And so the bottom line is, is I, I just think we're right there. Literally today is the day in Luke that Jesus heads for the cross. And the cross is the most dramatic reset in all of history. Since the day of creation, when God made a new thing, that's not a reset, that's a new thing. And at that point in time, God gave dominion of everything to us. And we then gave it away to Satan. And ever since then, we have been in this thing called the kingdom of the world, which Satan rules. And so it's been a mess. There's been good things too, and God's grace. But the bottom line is, is that's what's been going on. But literally, in terms of Luke... He is going to the cross right now. In a few hours, he will be crucified and dead. But then, Satan, by the way, thinking that he had won. But then in a couple of days, something is going to happen that is going to bring a whole new thing into the world. He's going to rise again. And when he rises again, this this world that only had the kingdom of the world in it will suddenly have another kingdom in it, the kingdom of God. And every person will make a choice continually all the time, not just one choice, all the time, continually. Do I want that kingdom, the world, or do I want that kingdom, God? And these choices are not simple. These choices have costs. These choices mean things. In fact, let's just do something here. When the kingdom of the world comes in, does everybody know the word ontological? Ontological is this word that means the most fundamental being ontologically we are the creations of god and the sons and daughters of adam and eve two days from now by this by luke two days from now when he raises on sunday he is going to create a new kind of being a new reality It's not just going to be the kingdom of God in the world. He's going to take us and change us. What Jesus does on this last, uh, Jesus is crucified, and then he rises again. The, The disciples understand that he might have risen again, but they don't know what's going on really. And so what it says is, that Sunday evening, the disciples were meeting behind locked doors because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. They killed Jesus. They're going to kill them next. So they're afraid. Suddenly, Jesus was standing there amongst them. That's a new thing. And he says, peace be with you, as in don't be afraid anymore. As he spoke, he showed them the wounds in his hands and his side, saying, it really is me. And that filled them with joy that they'd seen the Lord. And again, he said, peace be with you. Now, the first piece was don't be afraid. The second piece is the separation that happened over here in the garden. I'm restoring it. I'm restoring a relationship with God. Peace be with you. Your relationship with God be restored. And so he says, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, just like we talked about, I'm sending you. This is the end of Luke. This is what he's doing. And then he breathed on him and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, never forget this. Some of you have heard this. But let me just, just hang in there because we're re- rebuilding foundations, remember. But understand something. The same God that formed a lump of clay and breathed into it life is now coming to people who are estranged from God with a nature from Adam and Eve, which is to choose their own way, not God's. And he is breathing into them the Holy Spirit who is creating in them new life, a new being, a new nature, something brand new that had never been on the earth except in Christ. A person born of God that lives in the world. Peace be with you, as the Father sent me. And then he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. And notice, it's the cross that we can do this because of, right? A sinner cannot come into God's presence. So it is the cross where Jesus forgave. And so he says, he talks about forgiveness. If you forgive anyone's sins, they're forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. And he's talking about forgiveness. And what he's saying is, is, I've made it possible for you to now be forgiven because I took the penalty, the consequences of all your decisions upon me. And now if you receive what I did for you, you are clean and the Holy Spirit can come in the new temple and do a new thing. And the new thing that he does. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, a new nature, a new person. Old things have passed away. Look, new things have come. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. This is going to be an important thing that we're going to talk about here in a moment. For God's seed. What is a seed? You put an apple seed in the ground, and what comes out of it? An apple apple tree, and eventually an apple. But an apple tree, right? The seed is where everything comes from. Anything that thing is ever going to be comes from that. And what he's saying is, we now have God's seed in us, God's nature. He has put this new thing, and everything that will ever be is going to come from that. Now, we know that that new nature is inside of an old body that still hangs on to old things. So we do have a struggle. Or let me put it another way. We have a choice. Are you going to choose the things of the flesh? Or are you going to choose the things that God has put in you? If you water the one, it will grow. If you water the other one, it will grow. Quit watering the one. Water the other. Feed it. Nourish it. He cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. That doesn't mean that he never sins again. It means that Jesus' blood covers those sins. It means that your heart is not to sin. It doesn't mean, well, I sin and God will forgive me in some casual, fluid way. You know, there is no forgiveness for that. Well, I'll do it and God will forgive me. Literally, in the Old Testament, look it up. No sin for that. You make a decision to sin, just expecting God to forgive you, no forgiveness. Where does forgiveness come from? I don't want this anymore. I don't want to be that anymore. I don't want to do that anymore. I don't want that in my life anymore. I don't want it. You've got a new nature in me, a new thing, a new thing that is wanting the things of God and not the things of the world. And that's what I want. And I'm begging you, help me get to there. And step by step and moment by moment, God will move you into that. You, you have been born of God. And this is John 3 where he says, you must be born again. That means ontologically new. You see this? This new kingdom that God is raising up is in fact coming into people that are ontologically different. They are different beings than people who have not been made new by the Holy Spirit. We get it? Now, why am I making such a big deal about that? Because most of you in here, and this church is a church that is filled with people that have some depth to them, and of course you know all of this pretty well. But remember what we're doing. We're doing a reset. We're rebuilding a foundation. That doesn't mean we're going to talk all the time about stuff that you already know. In fact, you're going to hear some stuff here that I think you didn't know today. But here's what's going on. for, well, since 2016, when I was on my walk and the church in this area, a mega church, a huge church, uh, probably the largest church in the area at that time. If not, it was Mars Hill or this church, one of the two. But they decided that they were going to go full inclusion. And that means that the LGBTQ, they were going to, they didn't believe that there was a problem with that that God is okay with it. And so they were going to ordain pastors and they were going to do this and they're going to do all this kind of stuff. Now, can I say something in this whole sermon here? I need your grace. I can tell you right now, this is not a sermon I wanted to preach early in September. I want to preach something flowery and good and make you feel good and all that kind of stuff. That's what I want to do. I'm an exhorter by nature. Okay, I tell you good things about you and usually they're true. Thank you. Now, to be clear, I always think they're true. I never say anything about anybody I don't think is true. It's just that I don't always get it right. But anyway, whatever. But you with me here? I need grace. We're about to pray for the sermon, and I really need you to pray. I need every person in here to pray that this not just alienate, because I'm going to talk about some things that are pretty tough. And what I'm going to talk about in particular at this sermon at this point in time is we need to reset our theology. And I'm going to show you what we're going to do to help do that, not just in this sermon, but in this church, how we're going to help reset theologically, because I believe something. In 2016, when God told me that his hand of protection was coming off the American church to a degree, it wasn't full judgment, but it was to a degree, I knew the minute that he said that, that it meant that deception was going to start coming all over into the church, into people's hearts, into people's minds, there was going to be a tremendous amount of deception that was going to rise up in people's hearts. And I knew that I had to start doing battle with it right then, and and we were, but I just want to say, today we're going to go right to the heart of it, and then God's going to do whatever he wants to do with it, okay? So with that in mind, who's our prayer? Oh, this is perfect. Michelle, thank you. You are such a godly woman, and the things that you have been through, you know, and you are such an amazing person. So would you please lift up this sermon, and I mean, just give it to us, okay? I need God in fullness. I need the Holy Spirit, just like he was in worship. I need him here now. So go ahead.
1: Father God, I thank you for this day, this beautiful day that you've given us. I thank you for the people that you have brought here today today. We believe that you orchestrate our lives and you have called the people to come today that are meant to be here, that are meant to hear this word. Lord, I believe that you are speaking to individuals right now. Lord, I pray that you would give Pastor Kurt the words to say and that you would give each of us ears to hear, that we would hear. Lord, I pray that you would soften hearts to hear whatever difficult things it is you have to say to us. Let us not harden our hearts today, but let us hear. Father God, I thank you for the work that Pastor Kurt and Julie have done in this place, the work that you have given them to do and that they have served so faithfully. Lord, I thank you for this body, this congregation that is a family. We hear it over and over. Thank you that we have opportunities to reach out to our neighbors, reach out to the homeless in the community, that we even are so blessed to have a group of young people that you are raising up, the next generation that you are raising up for your glory. For Jesus' glory, Lord. Thank you. So I pray Your blessings on this house. I pray Your blessings on those who lead us. I thank You so much that You speak not only to them; You speak to them so powerfully, and so they can pour into us. But You speak powerfully to the individual members of this family, as we saw this morning. Words coming forth, even from the youngest to our elders, Lord. Thank you. You don't, you're not a respecter of persons. You have a place in the kingdom for every single heart that would come. Amen. So, Lord, I pray that you would strengthen us and embolden us to reach out to our neighbors, to our community, to point people to Jesus and usher people into your kingdom. Amen. Uh, Father God, I lift up Lifebridge Church in Frisco, Texas today. I pray that you would bless... Pastors Wayne and Sue Datweiler today, bless their ministry, bless their marriage, bless their family, and bless their church family there, Lord. Lord. Uh, They are doing amazing things to reach their community there, and so I pray that you would bless them and strengthen this. In Jesus' name we pray it all. Amen. Amen.
0: I want to lift up light to the world church, the Belarusian church that meets her after we do, and and Mary, and the, the work that you're doing there, thank you for the incredible thing you're doing in that church to Anoint and bless and thank you for letting us partner together on things that are making a big difference in your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. In order, we're going to move right along. But in order to understand the passage that we have for today, we need to look at the passage I did in early August, the last time I spoke besides last week, which was in the Luke passage. I just need you to see something about it. Jesus has been arrested. He's been given to Pilate. Pilate sees nothing wrong with him, sends him to Herod. Herod sees nothing wrong with him, sends him back to Pilate. Pilate called together the chief priests, the leaders and the people and said to them, you have brought me this man as one who subverts the people. But in fact, after examining him in your presence, I have found no grounds to charge this man with those things you accuse him of. He's just innocent, period. He's not just innocent of, He's not just guilty of something that wouldn't be according to death. He says, I can't find anything wrong with him at all. And then he says, neither has Herod, because he sent him back to us. Clearly he has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore I will have him whipped and released him, for according to the festival he had to release someone to them. Then they all cried out together, and remember we looked at the verses back in August, where it's the chief priests and the elders that went amongst the people and stirred them up to say, call out for Barabbas, not Christ, not Jesus. Take this, uh, they cried out together, take this man away, release Barabbas to us. Barabbas had been thrown into prison for rebellion that had taken place in the city and for murder. Pilate, wanting to release Jesus, addressed them again. But they kept shouting, crucify Jesus, crucify Jesus. A third time he said to them, why, what has this man done wrong? I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I will have him whipped and release him. But they kept up the pressure, demanding with loud voices that he be crucified. And their voices won out. So Pilate decided to grant their demand and released the one they were asking for who had been thrown into prison for rebellion and murder, and he handed over Jesus to their will. The key phrase in that, that our takeoff point, is their will. How do chief priests and elders, these are not the people who are casual about their religion and the scriptures and God and the things of God. These are the people who study the most These are the people that pray the most. These are the people that worship the most. These are the people that do the most things for God. How in the world can those people get it so wrong that the person that they are studying, the person they are praying to, the person that they are worshiping, and the person that they are serving in their acts is the person that they would now kill. They worship, pray, study, serve God, Jesus. And they're saying, kill Jesus. How do you get there? That's, one of the, that's kind of the thing that we're looking at. But I want you to see something here. If they could get it wrong, so surely can we. We're going to talk about some stuff that's tough. And there's a way of talking about this kind of stuff that has a pointy finger and says, I don't do these things and you do, so you're bad. I hope everybody understands that to A, be a stereotype. There's not that many people that are like that, but there are plenty. But most Christians aren't like that. Most Christians know they're but for the grace of God go I. Right? Right? But the bottom line is, is we need to stay in complete and utter humility, particularly when we're talking about things that are really tough. Because as God says over and over to all kinds of people, the Jews and others, if I did it to them, what am I going to do to you? Right? I need you to get this right. So now we go to our passage This is a a sermon, I don't know, there's people that are preaching in these next weeks. If somebody wants to pick up this sermon and do a fun sermon with it, do. Because I think this is one of the most beautiful things in scripture, and I don't even know why. I just know that there's some gem to be found in this particular scripture, but it's not the one that God led me to today. So as they led him away, they see Simon, a Cyrenian, who was coming in from the country and laid the cross on him to carry behind Jesus. I love that verse. There's just something very precious about it. And like I say, there's a great sermon, so I can't wait to hear it. But this is the one we're doing. A large crowd of people followed him, including women who were mourning and lamenting him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and your children. Look, the days are coming when they will say, the women without children, the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed are fortunate. This is the exact opposite of the Hebrew young woman, right? What she wants is to have kids, particularly the Messiah. But she wants to have kids in general, these women that you see all throughout the Bible that are grieving because they haven't been able to have kids and so on. I know that in these, day, in these day and times that people will make that choice, and if that's what God led you to do, more power to you. Great, No problems. But you just have to understand, to call somebody fortunate, because they haven't had a child is not the way, particularly the Jewish mindset would work. And Jesus is telling these women they're going to be the fortunate ones. In fact, it's going to get so bad that everybody will cry out and say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. What this means is something really horrible is going to happen and you're going to be fortunate that your children didn't have to experience this. You're going to be glad you didn't have children to see them suffer and die in the ways in which children are about to suffer and die. Now understand something, this reference is to something that goes Old Testament, current time, and, new te- and future. Let's just do Old Testament first. Let's go back and see. When it's bolded out, it's referring to something. And here's what it's referring to. This is the northern and southern tribes when there still are northern and southern tribes. Ten tribes to the north, two tribes to the south. Israel on top, Judah on bottom. Okay? Now what happens is, see that Assyrian kingdom? Those ten tribes in the north never did follow God. Not one time. Their kings led them astray, their prophets led them astray, their priests led them astray. They served after other gods, and God was sometimes in there just a little bit, but he was never their worship. And so what God is saying is, I bore you to be my children, to worship, to serve, to show the world who I was through you, and you've always gone after other gods. And so at some point in time, watch this key principle, never mistake God's patience for him being okay with something. Never mistake his grace for the fact, well, he understands, and it's no big deal. If you want to know what a big deal these things are, look at Jesus on the bloody cross. That's how big they are. So, the fact of the matter is, you got this going on, and Hosea, a prophet to the northern tribes, says this The pagan shrines of Avon, the place of Israel's sin, shrines to other gods, will crumble. Thorns and sisals will grow up around the altars, meaning it'll be crumbled and ruined. But during the time that the Assyrians come down and attack you, they will beg the mountains, bury us, and plead with the hills, fall on us. The attack from the Assyrians was so brutal. It took a long time to come. God had a lot of grace, and he waited, hoping that they would repent. But finally a day came when the thing was crossed, the line was crossed, and that was it. And when it happened, it, it was ruinous, devastatingly ruinous. Now, because I don't have time, and because I'd just rather not do this to you, I'm not going to tell you some of the stories about what they did, but what I'm telling you is, think about the most brutal things that you can think about, and that's what the Assyrians did. The Assyrians, like all world powers in that day and age, were extremely good at making people deathly afraid of them by causing horrible things to happen. So that's why they were saying, hide us, God. This is too much. Who can survive? And in fact, of the nation, no one did. But as I said, this also looks forward. I watched this land. Now, remember Revelation about something. Revelation is about what's going to happen to Jerusalem in their day. But then there's excess meaning. So it's also talking, it's multiple fulfillment. There is a fulfillment that's happening that he's talking about, but then there's excess meaning that goes to something that's gonna happen in the future. So I watched as the lamb broke the sixth seal and there was a great earthquake. The sun became as dark as black cloth and the moon became as red as blood. Then the stars of the sky fell to earth like green figs falling from a tree shaken by a strong wind. I need you to image in your mind what possibly could he be talking about because I'm going to show you something that I don't think is what he's actually talking about, but I want to show you something that's capable in today's world that if you had to describe it and you had no way of describing it, these are the images that you would use. You see how this is? The stars of the sky fell to the earth like green figs falling from the tree. In other words, the whole of the atmosphere, everything is disturbed. Now watch, the sky was rolled up like a scroll. All of the mountains and islands were moved from their places. Let me show you not what I think this is. Let me show you a modern day metaphor for what this is. Now watch that. Does it look like the skies are being rolled up? If you had no way of describing it, here comes the wave. by the way. Does that look a little bit like things falling from the sky? The skies rolling up, mountains being moved. Look at the bottom here. Being taken out of their place. Do you see it? Can you imagine now? Does it help you to say mountains fall on us to protect us? Because what happens in Revelation, then everyone, the kings of the earth, the rulers, the generals, the wealthy, the powerful, every slave, every free person, all hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they cried out to the mountains, and the rocks fall on us and hide us from the face of the one who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to survive? At this point in time, in our culture, particularly in America, we know God who is love, and that's how he describes himself. And by the way, you can understand everything that God does in his wrath in the context of his love. I'm not going to do it in this sermon. I've done it other times, and if you want to talk to me about it, do. But I just want to tell you, love is the primary thing about God. But we have made a terrible error, and it is a deception to not understand that God also cares about holiness. It's a violation of what he had to do with Christ on the cross to not understand how seriously God takes sin. And the reason why I'm going through this rather brutal moment right here is because we're just about to talk about a sin that is taking place in our culture and that we have all become comfortable isn't the right word, but it's something close to that word. We may not like it, we may not agree with it, we may even think the Bible says something different, but we've all become at the very least, tolerant to a degree. And I just want you to understand, God sees it differently than we do. Don't mistake his grace for being okay. So they say to the mountains, fall on us and cover us. In fact, what he says, now remember, we've looked back at it happening to the northern tribes, we've looked forward to seeing what it's going to look like in the end. But remember, there's a near-term fulfillment too. This generation will not pass away. And look what Jesus says about that and whose fault it is, but it is. Look, if they, who is they? The chief priests and the elders. If they will do these things when the wood is green, if they will do these things when I'm alive, what are they going to do when it's dried up and it's like kindling wood? What kind of fire is going to happen after I go? And indeed, in Israel, 39 years after the Passover that Jesus is killed on. Remember, he's killed on the day, on the evening before Passover. He's taken off the cross because it's Passover. They don't want to leave him up there. Remember that? 39 years later. How long is a generation? 40 years now You can't make this stuff up. This is facts. 39 years later, it is the Passover again. A city of 100,000 is swollen to 1.1 million. There's a rebellion going on and the Romans siege the city. And when they siege the city, by the time they're done, which takes a few years, and this is key now, the Roman soldiers did not kill the Israelites in the city. In fact, at one point in time, some Roman soldiers were caught killing people that were trying to escape to get the gold out of their teeth and so on. And the Roman general put those Roman soldiers to death. The Roman soldiers did not kill people. Instead, what happened was these people were locked up in their deception. They believed that God was going to rescue them. They believed that people were trying to escape in our modern parlance, just didn't have enough faith. They believed all kinds of things, which were all not true. They broke into factions and started fighting each other. And between starvation and killing one another, by the time the siege was over, only 90,000 people were still alive. Piled the bodies up, into the walls. To, the walls had been breached and they piled the bodies up to, to, to stop. Now this is all too gruesome and I'm just about to talk about something else. But here's, I, I, I need us to do something. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that's what we will reap. Always remember something. If you're all of a sudden saying to yourself, and there's people in there saying to yourself, i got to have no hope. I'm such a sinner. I'm such a screw-up. I'm such an everything. Here's what you have. No matter how big of a screw-up, no matter how much of a sinner you are, here's what you have. Jesus Christ. And if you keep turning to Jesus Christ, it doesn't matter. He's going to keep saving. Because he saves. That's what he does. He's a savior. So don't get into condemnation about this. Here's what we're talking about people that are pushing that truth away from themselves and saying, this isn't a big deal, or God actually likes it when he doesn't, he hates it. When you think that sin is no big deal to him, always remember Jesus on the cross. He wouldn't have done that unless it had to be done. All right? We got it? Because now we're going to go into the part that I, I wish it was later, and then I would just say I'll catch it next week. God shows his anger from heaven against all sinful, wicked people who suppress the truth by their wickedness what's happening here again? I'm using ESV here, so we got good language. Suppress the truth by what? See, how did they get into their, how did they push away God? Well, you see, there's this thing that's in the world. There's this thing that's in their flesh that they really want. They want to go that way. And then there's this thing in their conscience that's telling them, don't do that. And what they do is they tell their conscience, shut up. And they tell their flesh, go for it. And so they do it. And when they do that, they're effectively, for real, pushing God away, pushing the truth away. You see it? By the actions that they take, they're pushing the truth away. They know the truth about God because he's made it obvious to them. Look, for ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth, the sky, through everything God made. They can clearly see his invisible qualities. His eternal power, His nature, who He is. When He says He's love, we can see that in creation itself. You don't have to read it in the Bible. You can look at how impossible it is that this would come about naturally. And you can say to yourself, a designer did this who loves. A designer did this who's powerful. A designer did this who is intelligent. A designer did this who is provision. A designer did this who is all of these things. That's what He's saying his eternal power and divine nature, so they have no excuse for not knowing God. And we could do this as I've done many times before, but, but just look, we have the advantage now, these Hubble images. And just look at that image and tell me that God isn't beautiful. If you believe that he created it, and he did, look at that, tell me that he's not beautiful. Tell me something else. Those are millions of light years what we're looking at right there. Do, do you think he's big? How big is he? The earth could not even be seen in this picture. You couldn't see it even with a microscope. Do you think he's powerful? Do you think he's beautiful? Because I do. And again, I could show you so many different things, but let me just show you. Everything in that, if we were in that, you know, Star Trek, if we were flying around in in our little spaceship, everything in there kills us. Every ray, every cosmic radiation, everything in there kills us. Everything in the universe kills us, everything, except in this one little rock hurtling through space where, and this is key, all of these deadly forces combine in a way that create this just magnificent moment on a speck of dust where life is possible, and not just life, but abundance this little rock hurtling through space that kills everything has field after field after field after field around the world that just produces in moth. Do you think that God is a provider? Now I could go on and on, but let me just go to where I really care about. God says that he is love. And he has given us the capacity to Love the ability to love you know amoebas don't hug their babies god has given us this extraordinary capacity to have this extraordinary feeling that makes life the best it could can ever be better than money better than pleasures better than anything else love god is love and he has made it abundant if you want it, right? So he's not kidding when he says things like, yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks. They begin to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. We begin to make God in our image. First, we did it back in those days through an idol, and now we do it through worshiping ourselves. As a result, their minds became dark and confused, claiming to be wise, they instead became utter fools, Instead of worshiping the glorious, ever-living God, they worshipped other things, including ourselves. So God abandoned them to do whatever shameful things their hearts desired. Now, you have to understand something, right? He's talking about pushing the truth away, pushing him away from us so that we end up in deception, so that we end up in a bad place, right? He's talking about pushing it away, but now look where Paul goes. Look where the Holy Spirit has Paul go as he inspires him to write these words, it's sexual. There's a saying, there's a thing that we believe as Christians, and this is one of the reasons why. There's a phone down here. That is one of yours. Just don't want anybody to lose that just in case. Thank you very much. If anybody lost a phone, it's under this chair. Goodbye, no. There's a thing that we say in American theology right now which is completely false. And what we say is all sins are the same. That is completely false. There's absolutely no biblical warrant for it. To the contrary, God is always ranking sins as higher than another and worse than another. All the time. What we, the way that we can say that, the reason why we say that is because the consequence for all sin is the same. Death, right? If you separate yourself from him who is life, you're dead. And it doesn't matter if you did a little thing or a big thing. The consequence for all sin is the same. But the sin itself is not the same. There are sins that are worse than one another. We're going to see it right here. But here's what the bottom line is. The Bible makes it clear that the sin that is at the pinnacle is sexual. And if you just look around our culture right now, you can see that. And if you look around the world for all of time eternal, you can see that the worst things, the most devastating things, I'm not saying that money and power and other things have been there, but sex has been at the heart of the most degrading, the most dehumanizing, the most corrupting of the image of God that God has inside of people. And we're gonna see that because that's the point that he's trying to make here. Look, as a result, they did vile and degrading things with each other's bodies. What do you think he's talking about, a tattoo? No, they traded the truth of God for a lie. They worship and serve the things that God created instead of the creator himself who's worthy of eternal praise, amen. And this is why God abandoned them to their shameful desires. Now understand this, right now, look, the body, Paul said, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. These people have literally said, we live in Corinth, and Corinth is a place that has a temple, and in this temple, there's temple prostitutes, and part of the religion is to go and have sex with the prostitutes because, well, it's it's good for the temple because you give them money, and then that's supposed to somehow be good for you. Does that sound like something we would have made up? My religion tells me I need to go have sex with prostitutes. I can see a guy coming up with that religion. Right? But he so they say, look, the food was made for food and God made our bodies for pleasure. Why shouldn't we go pleasure ourselves? Why shouldn't we do that? And he's saying, no, that's dumb. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, the Lord for the body. The Lord is literally in us. We're the new temple, he'll say in two seconds. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Ridiculous. Do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? That is not just prostitutes. That's anytime you're having marriage outside of somebody that God made you one with inside of a marriage. Inside of a marriage, sex is pleasurable and beautiful and glorious. Outside of a marriage, you are joining yourself with somebody. And then you're ripping yourself apart from them and joining yourself with somebody else. And then ripping you apart from them and then joining with somebody else. And then we wonder why there's a loneliness. We wonder why there's a brokenness. We wonder why there's a hurt. And let me just say something. There's a lot of women that really want to be married. And because of sexual immorality in the world, there's husbands that are not stepping up and dating and marrying them as as God intended. And that is as much the judgment as the sex itself. It creates problem after problem after problem after problem. STDs and everything else. Literally, you can sleep with people that do not have, you don't and they don't have any STDs. You sleep with enough people, you'll end up with an STD. (sighs) Do you not know that he has joined one with her? As it is written, the two become one flesh. He who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. And so when you go and join yourself to someone else outside of the marriage bond, it is adultery. You are to be married to him, one with him. And when we go out and have sex with somebody else, it's adultery. Now listen, let's be clear. When I'm saying this inside of these walls to this crowd, everybody, not everybody, but a lot of people will say yes. But let's also be clear. There's a lot of people here that have done this. Me too. And we need repentance. We need to stand up. At this point in time, can you watch a television show where the people don't sleep together? Can you? At Hallmark? (laughs) No, no, I watch a lot of Hallmarks with my parents. They do not sleep with each other. They don't even kiss until the very end. Do you understand? This is how we think. We don't think anything of it anymore. Just as a culture, and the church is being dropped down with it. And here's the point because of his great patience, because of his great grace, we tend to think ah, it must be, I know it's not right, but eh. it's not, yeah. He is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. This is him talking about worse sins. But the sexual immoral person sins against his own body because you're supposed to be united with Christ and one with Christ, and you are ruining your relationship. You are are hindering, harming your relationship with God. Do you see it? You're harming yourself and your own body even to the point of the things that we just talked about. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. This is what the scripture says. It's not what our culture says, but this is why we need a reset (laughs) because even in the church, we don't talk about this stuff anymore. Not really. We make mention of it, but we don't do what I'm doing right now, hardly ever. Because it'll just offend people. Or whatever. Oh God, we repent. We're not going to stand up here. I'm not going to stand up here week after week and just beat people over all the things that we do wrong. But this is a moment, and we will take this moment. And I'm asking you in these next words that I'm going to say that they would be holy and that they would penetrate hearts, that they would get into minds and that people would see something different than what they thought. God, speak your words right now, not mine. In Jesus' name. God abandoned them. When we push God away, he abandons us to do what we wanted to do. He gave us free will. We're exercising our free will. There it is. Three things God makes very clear in this passage. Number one, God is not okay with sexual activity outside of marriage, period. If you've got your theology worked around to where it's okay, you've got your theology wrong, and that's called deception, period. Love you, there's hope, there's God, there's the Holy Spirit who will walk with you in the most amazing ways to bring you through the most difficult things. Marriage is about learning to love an other, and the reason why is because God is the ultimate other, and in marriage, God is trying to get us to a place to where we understand that, and that is between a man and a woman. Because here's the thing: sorry to say this this way, we're going to look at it in two seconds, but as a guy, no, no, don't make it about me. A guy knows what a guy wants. A woman knows what a woman wants, because they're both, even if they have very different personalities, sexually, they know what each other wants. Here's a, here's a thing that's true: A man can never know truly and fully what a woman wants and feels, cannot know it. A woman cannot know what a man wants and feels all the way. You can get better and better at it, which is you learning to love another coming to understand them more and more. But here's the truth. In the end, they're two totally different responses in ways that there cannot be a bridge between. You can get, like I say, very good at understanding which is what God is trying to do because in a marriage, including in the intimacy of the bedroom, God is trying to get us to learn how to learn about him more. That's what he's trying to do. And the reason why I say all this is because even the women turned their nat- against their natural way to have sex and instead indulged in sex with each other and the men, instead of having normal sexual relationships with women, burned with lust for each other. Men did shameful things with other men. You, you can't even say that anymore. I'm not the one saying it. God said it. There are people that are trying to explain that away biblically, but here's the problem, that passage. You can do little word studies by taking words out of their context and making them mean something and come up with a, a little way to get a little bit closer to maybe God's okay with this kind of thing because, of, it, well, it's, they're talking about a certain kind of sexual behavior. They're talking about this or that or anything else. But here's what the problem is. This passage does not allow for any kind of interpretation like this. This passage makes something very clear. Gay sexual activity is not okay with God, period. It's just not. Now, by the way, I wanna say something. If you're struggling right now, please, I'm begging you for grace right now. Would you hang in there for a minute? I'm about to talk about something that's gonna help a lot, okay? So if this is just losing you, I'm, beg- I'm asking you, hang in there for just a minute with me, okay? I'm moving quickly, but this is important. God is not okay with same-sex, sexual activity in any way. And in fact, what he says about it is this, as a result of the sin, they suffer within themselves the penalty they deserve. He means the kinds of things that happen to us, diseases and so on. Since they thought it foolish to acknowledge God, he abandoned them to their foolish thinking. They thought that thing in their conscience was nonsense and foolishness, and so he gave them over to being foolish and wrong, deceived. Deceived. He let them do things that should never be done and their lives became full of every kind of wickedness. Now, there's a stereotype here that we have to do, right? Because the stereotype from the scripture would be, oh, well, all gay people are like horrible human beings, wicked, down to their soul. We all know that's not true, right? You've got a family member, you've got a friend, you've got a coworker, you've got somebody in your life who is a really wonderful person, a beautiful human being. In fact, it's not common for them to be a nicer person than you are, a more loving person. It's actually fairly common. So we're not talking about some stereotype. What we're talking about is is that as we push God away, it opens us up to all kinds of things which now seem okay, which aren't. It's called deception. And just hang in there with me for one sec, because I'm going to say something about this, but watch this. They know God's justice requires that those who do these things, this is where we're living right now, I don't, think, we do, I don't think, we, I think we've seared our consciences to the point that this verse is no longer true in America for most people. They know God's justice requires that those who do these things deserve desire. I don't think people in America believe that. I don't think people know that. I don't think their conscience is telling them that because they've seared their conscience on this. Hardened it. So I don't think people feel, feel that way. But we do do this. Worse yet, they encourage others to do them. And here's what's being said right there. You know when you do something that's wrong and you know that you did something that was wrong and then you're trying to get out of the penalty for it? What do you do? Well, Johnny did it. And if Johnny jumped off a bridge, would you do that too? Right? This is what we do. If everybody's doing it, then it must be okay for me to do it despite the fact that there's something in me that tells me there's something wrong. If I can get everybody to do that, it will shut up the voice inside of me, the Holy Spirit inside of me that's telling me there's a problem. Watch, a better way. There's a Holy Spirit inside of me that's telling me there's a better way. There's something else that God has. Now, I want to say something. This is as much as we're going to talk about the LGBTQ stuff, but here's the point. You got to listen to me, okay? I have, we, I've done three sermons on this that, that were just, by the way, I invited LGBTQ people, friends, and so on to each one of these sermons. So in every one of these sermons, there were gay people at the sermons. And every one of them, I made a point to talk to them afterwards. And every one of them has said, I don't necessarily agree with you, but I really appreciate how you said it. And it did make me see things that I'd never heard before. So I'm asking you to go to our website Look for same-sex relationships, just search for it. And there's three of them right together. They were at different periods of time, but they make a nice set. And I'm telling you, I'm asking you, if you don't like what I'm saying, if you don't agree with what I'm saying, I'm just about to do something here. But what I'm telling you is first and foremost, would you do me a favor? Would you please go to the website and look at that stuff? Okay, and then we're gonna talk. But let me just get back to the sermon for a second and say this. If we don't agree with point number one and point number two, then that is us pushing God away, period. That's what this Romans passage is saying. You cannot argue it any other way, which is us being in deception. So if you figured out how it's not like that, I love you, it's not God, no matter how much you might feel like it is and think it is. Lord, Jesus is my Lord. And what that means is is he's my decider. He's the one that tells me what's true and right. He's the one that gives me a word that discerns what's real and what's not. Everything in my life, heart and mind comes from his word, presence, experience. So this becomes a test for us on two levels as Christians. The first one is this. Is the Lord really the decider for us of everything in our lives, hearts, and minds? You may not agree with what's being said here from the pulpit today. I don't care. Work on it and then talk to me. Please don't not talk to me. I'm here. In fact, watch how much so. But the second thing is, is, do we manifest his heart and his love? Jesus has the woman brought in adultery, something that God says he hates, and he loved her. And that's what he's asked me to do. If I could speak the languages of earth and heaven, all the languages of earth and angels, but I didn't love others, I'd only be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I had the gift of prophecy and I understood all God's secret plans and possessed all knowledge, if I had such faith that I could move mountains but didn't love others, I would be nothing. If I gave everything I have to the poor and even sacrificed my body, I could boast about it, but if I didn't love others, I would have gained nothing. God is love, and if we are not operating from love, then we are not operating from God, even if we're right in the principle. The process is as important as the principle. We're not talking about tolerance here. We're talking about a heart-rending love to help everyone who is being stolen from, killed, and destroyed. And here's what's key to this at this point in time. They don't believe that they're being stolen from, killed, and destroyed. They believe you're the one that's trying to steal from them, kill them, and destroy them. Thanks, but no thanks. That's what they believe. They believe you're the problem. But that doesn't change your love. And it doesn't change the truth. So you got to love. And you got to stand as Christ did and as he empowers you to do. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they may have life and that abundantly. When you come to somebody and tell them, quit doing something, okay. But if you come to, say, come to somebody and tell them that God has something better for you, that's an entirely different conversation especially when it's in love, especially when it's true. Holy Spirit will still get in there and quicken them, maybe. But bottom line, what can we do? So what I'm saying is first watch the three sermons we grouped together on our website, search for same-sex relationships, and then, and here's our I'm ending. If you still have questions for any reason in any way, I do not care. If you're struggling with this personally, if you just disagree with me completely, if you have language studies, if you have other things, I don't care what it is. If I haven't seen it, I'll I'll process it, but I, okay. Look, come and talk to me. There's my email right there. Talk to me. Please watch the sermons first so that we have laid a big foundation and then we'll talk about it and here's what's really going on right now. I said that what we wanna do is reset our foundation theologically and I said that this sermon was just, a sermon, but that we're going to do this as a church, understand something, before God ever told me to do Reset, before God ever spoke to anybody, months ago, in fact, from 2016, I have been praying about how do, I, how do I work theologically, because who wants to do theology? I mean, there's a few people in here that raise your hands, but most people, that's dry and dead and boring. I don't want to do systematic theology and learn about the Trinity and learn about, you know, but, but all of these things are life, and so we're going to be doing something now, right here, It's called reset, but I'm calling it (laughs) theologeneering. I'm glad you laughed because I mean you to laugh. Theologineering, its like mountaineering and engineering. We're going to get together, but here's the key to it. Now watch—we're going to get together in small groups. Here's what doesn't work to to do theology anymore: me standing up in front of a bunch of people that can't talk back, because you have questions, you have thoughts. You have things that you would want to say about it and until we talk about it I had the most wonderful time with a couple this week. And they just we talked about really deep stuff and then they were able to ask me all these questions. And then I was able to ask questions and then we just went back and forth. The learning that you do in that environment is so much greater than can even happen in this environment that I am literally doing something that God led me to do a long time ago and I was already planning on, and that is I'm going to reduce my preaching a little bit so that I pick up bandwidth to start going around to groups that are no more than 12. If it's three or four people, that's perfect. If it's 12 people, that's still gonna work. But I want it to be small enough to where the most introverted person is gonna gonna feel really good about bringing up anything they wanna bring up. And here's what we're gonna be doing. Theology done right is simply coming to know God. It's not about all those concepts. It's about coming to know God. He has revealed himself in the word throughout history and in each of our lives. Theology just puts all of that together to understand who he really is more deeply. The modern world is so overflowing with information, distractions, entertainments, that it's very difficult to stop and take the time to put all this together. The Lord has deeply impressed upon me how important it is to get together with small groups of people, 12 or less, so that we can really dig in and discuss. This is going to be a blast because theology done right overflows with the joys of aha revelations as God opens our hearts and minds. Have you ever had that happen? We were sitting and all of a sudden, you know, reading your Bible or talking to God or doing something, and all of a sudden you get this revelation. Doesn't it feel good? Isn't it like this? Literally, you are built to have this release of a revelation from God. You are built for this. So that's what we're going to do. And right now, here's the it's not so tentative. You can see I'm going to the youth group. I'm going to the 20s. I'm going to do one in Bellevue here. I'm going to do one in Woodenville. Then we're going to do 20s and youth. And then I'm going to try a church one before service, see if that works. And then we're going to do one in Redmond, a youth, 20s, Renton. You see what I mean? We're going to go north, south. I'm going to go all over. And I'm just going to go. Some of them will be inside a community group. Some of them will just be at a house. And I'm just going to come. And if anybody wants to come, come. And like I say, if it's three or four people, that's awesome. But come with the stuff that you care about. Because what I'm not going to do is come at a curriculum with you. I'm not going to start at page one of Rod Williams' systematic theology called renewal theology. Instead, what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask you, bring what you care about, and that's what we're going to talk about. Got it? We're going to reset the foundations here. We're going to go after the Lord bringing revelation about how beautiful he is. How loving, how powerful, how incredible. We're going to reset. So Lord, in Jesus' holy and precious name, I'm asking you that you would do this reset as only you can. Come and do the most extraordinary things as only you can. In Jesus' holy and precious name, you do what you can do. We are turning our foot from the things of the world We are turning to you, and we are saying in Jesus' holy and precious name, come meet us. Come take us across that wilderness to your promised land. If you don't take us, don't send us. So we start out the journey saying, come and take us home. Reach down in front of you, and in front of you are these two cups. If you're in the front row, just there's one right behind you. And then the people in the back row, would you hand it forward to people? In the bottom cup is the world, which we are all too worldly. And we have broken relationship with God, and we have broken understanding, and we have hurt ourselves. And so we take our finger and put it in there recognizing that we have broken. And now we lift this cup and we look through the cup to the cross. Because on that cross you healed us all. By your stripes you healed us all. And so Jesus in holy and precious name heal us now. Heal us Lord. We beg you we ask you we thank you. Because we ask according to your will we know you will do it. Heal us. Take together. By the way, I would say heal our culture too, Lord. Heal our world. There but for the grace of God go we in there, but there are all too many of us actually go anyway. If you are here and you do not know the Lord, take that bread for Jesus to heal you and then lift up this cup in which is the life that Jesus has for you. God, we recognize that it's just waiting for us to partake, to take it into ourselves and become. So in Jesus' name, we take this cup together, asking you for new life.